Today we're talking with British fantasy writer James Barclay, author of Dawn Thief, Noonshade, Nightchild, Elf Sorrow, and Shadowheart, The Chronicles of the Raven. The Chronicles of the Raven are classy, classic fantasies written with verve and skill. These novels feature vivid characters, a setting that is beamed into your brain as if it were a movie screen, and a world in which violent actions have heart-rending consequences. If Clint Eastwood were to direct a fantasy movie, he might hope to have it turn out as well as one of Barclay's novels. Welcome to the Agony, Colin James. Thank you. James, what made you first start reading and writing, and when? Um, well, I, actually, I've, I've written ever since I can remember. I think I wrote my first short story when I was seven years old, and my mother still has it. Um, wouldn't like to tell you anything about the quality of it, but uh, it was there nonetheless. I've read because there was a history of reading in our family. Um, we were taught to read at an early age. My brother handed me down books as soon as I could take them, and you know, and I read The Hobbit when I was six or seven. I was reading Moorcock by the time I was ten. And really, it's, it's, uh, it's snowballed from there. And I've written ever since. That's really early to start reading Moorcock. He's a fairly adult author. What did you make of it? I think probably at the time, not much. It's difficult to remember. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so some of the more surreal moments of Coram and Elric would be uh, difficult for a 10-year-old, I suspect. But I, I remember enjoying the action and the soul-stealing and all those sorts of things. So uh, it was, yeah, an interesting introduction, you'd say, to fantasy. Right. Now, so you're working at your day job and it comes to you that you want to start writing a series of epic fantasies. You were thinking about your inability to use your broadsword in the office? <laughs> yes, although one, you, you might wish you could use your broadsword in the office quite a lot. It would be uh, sometimes a way of getting cutting through problems, I would have thought. Um, <laughs> but yes, I've, I've actually never found it too difficult to partition myself between work and, and writing. The, the only problem is being frustrated at the office because you know you could be doing something much more fun elsewhere with a with a laptop or a notebook or, or such like. But such is life. You've got to pay your bills. Uh, what do you do as a day job? Just I'm, I'm the advertising manager for an investment house in the city of London. Uh, and that means I, I write and create adverts along with um, you know, copywriters and designers and such things. And I buy media space, spending the company's money on colour slots in the newspapers and on billboards and such like. Okay. Did you start writing short stories before you made the plunge into novels? I did, but um, but not very many, to be honest. I, I had I've only actually ever had I think one published in my entire life. I've never been a big short story writer at all, which is I think slightly unusual in in terms of a of a writing career. I think that the only short story I had published was when I was uh, now let me think eighteen nineteen. I was at I was at uh, college at the time, and it was published in a local journal in Sheffield in England where I was studying. Tell our listeners about the setting of your novels, the world of Belaya. Well, it's a it's a created world. It's 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 based on, I guess you'd say, a, a medieval feudal society, and it's 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 split between two major continents. There's Belaya, which is the northern continent, and there's Calais, which is the southern continent, split by a large ocean. But one of the things that it does have, of course, it has it has access to to multiple parallel dimensions. Not everyone has access to multiple <laughs> parallel dimensions, but th th they are there. And mm -hmm. th there are dimensions which feature dragons, and, and there's one which features a dying avian race, and there's another dimension which is uh, where the dead, I was going to say live, but uh, <laughs> it's not quite right, where the, where, where the dead go, and, and, and one where the demons live, if you like, which is, it's not hell. Not hell? No, it's not hell, because no, uh, my, my demons are, that, that they're only called demons because they are, they are creatures of myth made real. And the people call them demons because... That's what they believe them to be, but there is no heaven or hell as such. The demons are a nomadic race who mm -hmm. consume dimensions and then move on to the next one and consume that too. 
sort that, of like that's Microsoft. Their job. Yeah, sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, the Raven are a group of mercenaries, men who fight for money in this world. Tell us about your main characters, at least in maybe the first novel, since that's subject to change without notice. <laughs> yes. Yes, trying to tell you about the characters as they go through all the novels is a bit difficult. As, as readers will know, they, they do die with depressing regularity at yes, times yes. Um, for some people. Um, the I think that there were three or four principal characters um, that, that make up the Raven and make up its heart, if you like, and that, that's the thing that I really had to try and keep together. Um, we have a what I would call a barbarian warrior, although he's not a barbarian in that he rushes around with bloodlust. He's a barbarian because he was born in the north of the country where it's cold and where he had to live, so that's why he's a barbarian, because that's what they call themselves. Um, his name is Hirad, Hirad Coldheart, and he is a, you'd call him, I don't know, he's an, he's an arrogant, mouthy, but extremely capable swordsman, and, but he's got a huge heart, and he believes utterly in what the Raven do. So he's actually, he's kind of the glue that always keeps them together, because if things get desperate, there's always him behind them telling them that they will not die and that they will live and that they will win, because he fundamentally doesn't believe that they'll ever fail, which is a good thing, because mm -hmm. they get into some tricky situations every now and again. Um, at his at his left hand, as it actually is, is a guy called the Unknown Warrior. Another or slightly odd name, but the Unknown Warrior is he's he's that because it's a nickname that was given to him because he was rather reticent about his name when he joined the band for reasons that become apparent when you read a couple of the books. Uh, he is a huge man. I don't know. I don't know how big he would be. Um, Twenty-one, twenty-two stone. Don't know how you translate <laughs> that into pounds. Can't think of it. Can't think of it now. 220 odd pounds, I expect that must be. Uh, basically, solid muscle, really, but he's quick with it. So it makes him a pretty awesome warrior. And what he brings them is strength and power and tactics. Mm -hmm. um, and he's, he's the one that Hirad would rely on at any time for just for guidance and to bring a bit of sanity to the situation sometimes, I think. And we've got a couple of, couple of well, three mages actually in, uh, at peak times in, uh, in the Raven. We have a guy called Denser, who comes from the Dark College of Magic, but he's actually an okay guy um, when you get to know him. But they have a very tricky introduction to each other, the Raven and him, uh, mm -hmm. early in the first novel. We have Ilkar, who is an elven mage. I do have elves. The elves all come from Callias and live a long time and live in and are born and bred in the rainforest. And they're an interesting race. We might get onto them later, but we never know. Um, and Arienne, who is a, a female mage who is exceptionally powerful and becomes more and more and more important to the novels as, as they go through. You invest quite a bit of characterization in the dragons of your world as well. I do, yes. I'd, I've had a lot of fun with them, actually, because when, when I first started writing about the dragons, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be like that at all. There was going when, when I was writing Dawn Thief, the dragon was there. It was there as, as, as a plot device as opposed to what, what became a very, very close relationship between dragons and humans. I hadn't even necessarily thought that there would be an adventure which takes place, quite a lot of it, in the actual dragon dimension, but eventually that, that, that they, the raven do go there. And I was what I was fascinated by was, was being able to have a sentient creature of that size, that sort of enormity. And, and what I was trying to investigate, I suppose, with them was what would they do, really? Mm -hmm. Because they can't build things. They can breathe fire on stuff, but they can't really build things. And so I'm trying to work out what the society would be like. And, and they, they've developed through that. And, and they, what, what, what they have is that they have sort of, if you like, they're not slave races, but they have linked races of, of humanoids that do the building for them. Because I've decided that dragons 
can still appreciate um, aesthetic structures and such like, and, and, and enjoy beauty of the beauty of construction and. But also, they're they're a warlike and brutal um, race. They they're divided into several, well, hundreds, I suppose, of, of broods on in their dimension, and they're fighting a continuous war for domination of of, uh, of the species, if you like. Now, your first two novels, Dawn Thief and Noonshade, really seem like two halves of one whole. The story really is continuous. What? Why the decision to publish it as two novels? Um, I'm not quite sure. I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, d- I wrote Dawn Thief as, as definitely as a standalone, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until I, we mo- I was most of the way through it that the link to Noonshade, as well what became Noonshade, became obvious to me. And so th- then you then you start to work in the parts of the story which you're going to carry on in the next book. But for me, Dawn Thief is, is a complete novel. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, it, uh, it, I mean it. It has a beginning, middle, and end, and and uh, Noonshade deals with the consequences of Dawn Thief. But I suppose. While you can read Dawn Thief without reading Noonshade, you probably can't read Noonshade without Dawn Thief. So from that point of view, you're right, Rick. It's mm-hmm. that, that that they are like that. But Dawn Thief was conceived on its own. Okay. And Noonshade came along it afterwards in the same way that Nightchild did as well. It wasn't a, a, an, a consequence of turning in a, an 800-page novel not, and somebody no. saying, oh, my God. No, not at all. Not at all. Now, there's a sort of Lovecraftian feel to this environment, a sense of other that the other could march in at any moment and do some very unpleasant things <laughs> from all your various dimensions. Were you influenced by Lovecraft? Actually, no. I've never actually read a, a Lovecraft book. Although, having said that, well, in my early role-playing d- days, there was, there was a, a game, a, well, I think it was what probably was based on Lovecraft, a call of, what's it called, The Call of Cthulhu. Oh, so you're a ga- you come from game-playing. Oh, very much so, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Enjoyed it very much when I was young, yeah. I played into my early 20s. Really? And from the age of about 14 or 15. And uh, we played all sorts of different styles of game from uh, the, the, old, the old classics like Dungeons and Dragons through an excellent gaming system called Dragon Quest. We've tried Wild West in Boot Hill. We've tried cartoons in Toon. We've tried Bushido for a bit of Japanese, a bit of Call of Cthulhu, as I mentioned. I mean, uh, we try them all out and even sci- you know, science fiction stuff too. Interesting. One of the most striking features of your world is that the violence that's so common in fantasy has immediate and long-term consequences to the main characters. Yes, I, 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 I guess when when I when I've read stuff and seen stuff on the t- on the TV, it, violence can be too sanitized, and people dying is a sort of an oh oh well there we go and, o- and off they go on to something else. And I, I don't think you can escape the fact that that violence does have enormous consequences for the people it's done to and the, you know, the victims and and actually the victors as well. Um, although the Raven are professional killers, they don't just kill indiscriminately, and they're aware of the the the, the, the knife edge that they're on the whole time that they're fighting, the whole time that they're living. That, that in just one moment, one click of the finger, one one slip, one good sword thrust, and you're out of here. You're you're dead and gone. And what I wanted to do was not hide the violence and, and make it sort of the, the Errol Flynn flickering of swords and that and that sort of stuff because. Sword fighting and, and for me, magic battles are brutal and horrible. And I wanted to describe that, not in a gratuitous way, just just to say that if you get hit with a six-foot piece of sharpened metal, you know it's going to take something off. <laughs> in general, that's, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> what were the models that you drew from, or that inspired you to treat your characters in the way that readers have come to love in such a fashion to to kill them 
Well, I mean, actually, I think that, that probably goes back to the role playing mm-hmm. as well. I mean, the the genesis of the Raven came from a uh, from from the Dragon Quest game that we played, and the the closeness of of the characters and, and their banter and and such like that that was part of it. And the fact that in a role playing game, again, sudden death is 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 part of the deal when you when you're doing that. And it it's but it also struck me that you can't you can't realistically go through. 10, 15 years worth of, of, of fighting and spell casting and being a mercenary without losing some people on the way. It's just not credible. So you're you're going to lose your friends at some stage. That's, that's just part of the deal. So I think having... That, that's why having a, a group rather than an individual is important to me because it means that you, you can develop closeness of characters, but you can also, when you want to, again, not gratuitously, but you can also set up um, at the death of a character and then have to deal with the consequences of it afterwards. And actually, Shadowheart d- does deal with very much with the consequences of the death of one of the other characters at towards the end of Elsorrow. He right. says, not trying to, to put any spoilers in for anyone. But right. <laughs> Tell us about how you use the economic structure of your world. Who does what? Who gets paid what? How ordinary characters, otherwise unseen in the narrative, manage to feed themselves to make that world come to life in the readers' minds? Well, it's what, what I try. What I try and do is, is only sketching as much as is necessary. I think mm-hmm. that's probably the first thing to say. I don't. I don't. I don't go into it a lot about how many acres are farmed and um, and what people do. I mean, the re- readers know that there are things like mining. There is a health. There's healthy trade between the northern and southern continents, as well as there is healthy trade in Belaya itself. Um, there is there's an extremely d- there's there's very very lively trade inside the the main cities, because what I've done is I've split up Belaya is split up into lots of baronies and and the sort of minor fiefdoms, if you like. And although these, these these barons are at war with each other quite a lot over over land and stuff, what would what they what they also like to do is trade with each other to to earn money. And they ca- and they they deal with commodities like like cloth, like crops, like livestock. Um, one of my one of my favourite barons actually grows wine and it and exports it all over the place. And he's a particularly wealthy man because it's a, it's a rare commodity. Um, and I think just but just sketching in just so that you know these things happen. Is all that you need to do, and what you'll find is that a small farming community will that, that's outside of Barony would will be able to trade its surplus away to the city or away to the local castle or, or wha- whatever it is. And from that point of view, it's not much different from a, from a it's not it's not a feudal system, but a, probably just slightly one step up from that, a, a medieval barter system, if you like. There is gold, and you do get you and you do get paid. That that sort of currency, if you're a, if you're a member of the Raven, for instance, because you don't want someone giving you 85 years of corn to go and fight with, you you, <laughs> you need the money because you need to buy yourself more weaponry, whatever it is. In particular, your character Ariane experiences some terrible losses. She does, yes. Um, she's a very complex character. I found her quite a challenge to write. I, I think I probably only started getting her right. Probably in in Nightchild in in the third book, um, she is incredibly unfortunate. You're absolutely right. I mean, she she manages to lose three children in inside three books, which isn't very nice. And and two of them are murdered. She has twins when Dawn Thief opens, and and the that the third child is is lost because of a power that she can't control. And wherein is even more complex is that those that she blames for the death of her of her third child are the very people she needs most to understand the power that has been transferred to her from the death of her third child. 
if that makes any sense at all. Perfect sense. So she has to. <laughs> so so, so she, she needs them and loads them in equal measure, which makes it very difficult. And the consequences of of those losses on the raven are quite severe because, as you might expect, I mean, p people are suffering that that sort of grief aren't necessarily going to be well balanced the whole time, and that's difficult in a combat situation and difficult in a in a peril situation. If if one of your characters is basically isn't isn't all there the whole time, but the other thing I've managed to make her, I think, is an Im immensely strong-willed and strong-character woman. And and she draws on the support of the Raven, which is a, another theme that I use. They're, they're all there for each other as much as they can possibly be, and that, that actually probably stops her from descending into, into insanity, frankly. The Raven is a group dynamic, and they interway yeah. interact in ways that seem very realistic. How did you create that group dynamic? Again, that will go a little bit back to the role-playing days, I think, too. But what... What, what I looked at was how I talked with my friends, with my oldest and closest friends, and and the way that our dialogue is is set up, particularly because I think the, the thing that, that really makes them come alive for me, be like, is 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 their conversation, their banter as they're just walking along, or or even in the middle of a fight, or whatever it might be. And it was a, and it's a very conscious decision to make sure that I kept the language light and quick and modern. So I don't I don't use sort of old-style language just because it's set in a medieval land. I don't, don't think that's necessary. So what, what I've made it, I've made it very 20th century, but obviously taken out technological references. And I think that, that certainly helps because it, it makes it easy for the reader to, to identify with very quickly. There doesn't have to be a glossary at the back. Right, which is very nice. <laughs> yes. Your novels also have a feel of Westerns about them. It's a, a wild frontier. Are you influenced by Westerns? And if so, which ones? Um... I probably am influenced by them, but not consciously. I think that 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 sort of that sort of living on the margins thing, where there is there is sort of a rule of law, but not. It's it's not a dominant rule of law. A bit, a bit like the old sheriffs and marshals and stuff. It was okay. It's okay in the towns and cities, but as soon as you get outside, you get you get the idea from westerns that actually it's, it's a pretty lawless place. And that's, I guess, that's the theme that I have I have used, although you pointing it out to me is quite an interesting thing. <laughs> but um, my if, if but. I used to like watching westerns, and I still do. Uh, no, the spaghetti westerns I particularly like, the Clint Eastwood stuff, very, very much. Um, I remember when I first saw The Magnificent Seven years and years and years ago, and I absolutely loved that film. And curiously, I have seven people in The Raven. I don't think that's <laughs> I don't think those two things are linked, but you just never know. <laughs> but yeah, but Ennio Morricone stuff, that, that, those sort of very bleak, and again, very violent and very very sudden death style westerns, which those which those films are. They, you know, with with uh, with Clint Eastwood and and his cronies there. They kind of sum up the the swift violence and the and the harsh reality of of that sort of world where people are trying to get ahead and live their lives, but there's a there's a well, undercurrent, it's an overcurrent of, of violence. It's, it's there the whole time, and death can come very quickly and very suddenly to anyone. While most fantasy novels have a military component, your novel Elf Sorrow from last year really broke the mold with a sort of guerrilla warfare scenario, <laughs> which I really loved. Uh, the Rainforest T reads a bit like a fantasy take on the John McTiernan movie Predator. Yeah, that, that, that it's, it's been it's been said. I think uh, Predator is an interesting film. It's not. I mean, it's a typical Arnold Schwarzenegger film, if you like. I mean, but the Predator is a, is a very interesting creature because of the way it hunts. And that's that's something I, d I did bring into particularly that my uh, these these uh, elven warriors called the Tigepen, who they actually work in threes, um, but they are they are the ultimate 
the ultimate elven warrior if you like yeah and they're, they're stealthy they're quiet they're quick and they're absolutely deadly and i was trying to create what i was trying to create was i tried to create a darkness and the rainforest really helps there because because rainforests are very close and packed and hot and humid and difficult places to be and it was interesting to me sticking people from Belia into the middle of this rainforest without any conception of how it really worked and then letting loose on them people that have, have been born to it and have been born to it for hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, if you like. Oh, sorry, hundreds and thousands of years, not hundreds of thousands, hundreds and thousands of years. And the reality for me was that the people, that the aliens, if you like, the people from Belia with, with their swords and their armor, we're, we're going to get absolutely wiped out by these people that just know it much better than they do and there's no there was no credible way I thought that they would that they would actually beat the elven warriors on their own ground not not a chance you in this novel also create a remarkably sympathetic character I'm going to take a stab at how to say the name Iran Iran yeah Iran, who does some very bad things but still the reader as a reader I loved him He's actually one of my favourite characters. I'm glad you picked on him. He's he's interesting because he's a he's a career soldier, and he's been asked to do he, he does he does what he's told. Um, he was he was born born into the Dark College. He's 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 made his career as a soldier for the Dark College, and he's been and you you get the you get the impression he's been to the rainforest quite a few times to do to do this and that. Um, but he's but but he's grizzled and cynical at the same time, and he wants he wants to pass on his learning to, to those that are coming after him and because he hasn't got a family of his own he has you know he takes under his wing this 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 young young soldier who he tries to to coach through the, the horrors if you like but I think he's he has he had well he has a redemption as you know later on in the book when when he realizes what it is that he's done I think although he does bad things I think for him they probably they aren't bad things no he I mean he, he, he believes he believes the dark college are doing the right thing and if they want artifact X he'll go and get it for them it's when he finds the consequences of taking Artifact X, i.e. that he unleashes a plague across the Elven Nation, that he that he knows it's a step too far and actually wants to to come back and and, and do something about it. But even but but you're right. Even even at the time that he believes he's doing the right thing, he's still he's still a human being. And, I'd, and, I'd, and he was an interesting character to write from that point of view because he's not a bad man. He's a professional. Soldier. You do a great job at playing with the reader's sympathies, both stirring them for and against simultaneously, and creating a very complex situation yeah. with him and his uh, foot soldier. Yeah, Ben Ferran, his ben name Ferran. is the, the football foot soldier. Yeah, I mean he's but he's got a sense of humour. I think that's that, that, that that's what makes uh, makes him sympathetic in the eyes of readers. He's got a very dry and sarcastic sense of humour, a very good set of one-liners that he that he can pull out of the bag, and I, I very much enjoyed writing him because of that. You also create antagonists who are somewhat sympathetic. Yeah, because I, I think I probably don't. I fundamentally don't believe in ultimate evil, if you like. Although in the first book, the witch lords are ultimate evil. They're they're they're, they're a different kettle of fish entirely. But you're probably talking about um, people like Distran who and Stillian, who are who right. are l leaders of the uh, the leaders of the Dark College at different times. Again, interesting characters because they're. I think what what you, what, you, what you can't ever get away from with these people is that they've been brought up that way. That that's the, that that's their that's their take on life, and it's the way they've been schooled ever since they were born, if you like, to believe that the that Zetesk, the Dark College, ought to be the dominant college. Now that doesn't make them bad people, fundamentally. It's how they go about doing it that would make them bad people in the in the eyes of good people <laughs> <laughs> or better people, if you like. But again, I don't. I'm 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 keen that that, that they're also human beings. 
and they have um, so that you know that wha- why shouldn't they have a sense of humor what why shouldn't they fall in love what why shouldn't they feel guilt and why shouldn't they feel anxiety about what they're doing i think that's probably true of that's probably true of the of the most hideous dictators in in earth's history that also comes into play you have a lot of uh, political forces moving around in your novel and it's a really interesting interaction are these reflections of what you see in the world around you um it's difficult to say i mean i think uh, inevitably yes that they are and and uh, what, what I, I suppose what i investigate not i don't, I don't sit, sit down to investigate these themes but but they they come out as you write in the book because because i want there to be complexity and and betrayal and trust and, and those those sort of things in the books U- using political forces that oppose each other or make treaties with each other which they then break that, that those sorts of things are a good way of, of introducing that that sort of that sort of complexity for me anyway and what what i suppose i like to investigate is why it is that that people who could make things right quite easily go out of their way to make them as complex and difficult as possible and we see that all over the world today yes we do <laughs> <laughs> You spend quite a bit of time on the mechanics of magic in yeah. your fantasy world. It's very technological. It's a science, um, and I, what 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 I like about it is that you can't just do it because you're magic. That's for me. That's that's not right. I mean, it. I think w- when I set up the magic system, it wasn't as complex as it has since become. Interestingly enough, but it needed to have parameters. Because otherwise it would be too powerful, and if it's too powerful, then magicians rule the world. End of story. That's it. They just do. So you can't, and you can't have that because it's rather dull for me. And these, my stories wouldn't have worked if, if magic ruled the world. But it is a very powerful force. But it's very difficult to use. And mana, you know, that the fuel of magic is an element like earth, air, fire, and water are elements. And what mages can do is that they can manipulate it when they're good enough. But when you're a young mage, it takes you a lot, a, a lot of time to work out how to manipulate it. It takes a lot of energy to learn how to manipulate it, and it's easy to get it wrong. And if you get it wrong, you can suffer the consequences, some of which are death, clearly. Um, but, but but at all times, it, it, it's, a, it's a structured thing. Because you'll be alluding to when, 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 they cast a, when a spell is cast, there's a shape is created. So it isn't all mumbo-jumbo and, and command words. They have to actually draw... They, they actually have to... They, they take the fuel if you like and mold it into something and then chuck it out that's that's how it works and that's all done through it's actually done through mind control it's an element of mathematical yes absolutely yeah make it yeah because the shapes they create are often uh, geometric and and they spin and and turn and and develop and and they expand and contract so there's lots of there's there's lots of parameters that they have they have to bring in and i think that's for me that that just gives the world its bit of balance because it means that not everyone can do it, and not everyone can do it right. And even if you're brilliant at it, you can only do a certain number of these things before you're tired and have to go to bed. Right. So <laughs> this, of course, leads me to ask about your PS publishing novella, oh, yes. Light Stealer. How did that come into being, first off? Oh, um, Peter Crowther, the, the, uh, the guy that runs PS, uh, came and asked me whether I'd like to do a novella. And I mean, very much, I mean, it's, something it, it, it's not a... Um, a form of writing that I'd done before, and they're about uh, 25,000 words. Now, one of my books is probably about 165,000 words, so this is quite a lot shorter, but you still need to do a complete story in it. So I was quite interest- intrigued about how I would make 
um, a relatively complex idea work in, in effectively a very short form. And what, but we, do, we discussed whether I would do a story outside of Belial, whether I would do sort of an alternate Raven adventure, just a short one. But what I really wanted to do the whole time was, was investigate more about the guy who invented Dawn Thief. So I'd had little bits and pieces on him, and I'd written about him in, in Noonshade, and it just struck me he was an interesting character. So, I tr I, so ri really, I'd, I talked to Peter about investigating him and, and the consequences of him finding and developing Dawn Thief and then announcing it to the world and what that would do. Because he's a very naive man, the man that, that invented Dawn Thief. He's, he's got a huge ego. He's very arrogant. He's very brilliant. But he doesn't understand um, how other people would react to him finding the ultimate power, which is what he finds. He thinks it's an experiment. And isn't, it, and isn't that nice? Look at all the good things we can do. And everyone else is thinking, great, lovely weapon. Think <laughs> we'll have that. And he doesn't understand it. It's a, you create a, a fascinating uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Yes. <laughs> Was it really based on that? Um, no, but when when it would, when I was developing that that uh, the, the denouement to to the novella, those sorts of of desperate sieges, they they did come into it. So there's elements of of aliens as well, if you like. And there's elements. There is elements of the Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, I mean that's. It's, it's, it's a fantastic film for that, that, that sort of that sort of desperation and, and action and noise and violence those sorts of, those sorts of elements I wanted to bring in, but it's not not based on that solely. No. <laughs> Tell our listeners about your latest novel, Shadowheart. Well, Shadowheart is I mean, it's, it's the follow-up to uh, to Elf Sorrow, and it deals with the ongoing consequences of various themes were that, that were begun in Elf Sorrow. As I mentioned earlier, with the, the death of one of the principal Raven characters affects um, Hirad, who survives, who survives this, this chap's death. It affects him greatly, and it unbalances him. And so I investigate his, his grief a little bit in, in that and how, it, and how someone of his um, basically violent nature will actually deal with the consequences of losing someone so close to him. Are, are um, the experiences in grief in these novels based on your own experiences with grief? Or no, no, they're not actually no. I mean, I've I've been in touch wood gently. Um, been very fortunate so far in mm -hmm. in that regard. I'm not looking forward to experiencing grief when it when it inevitably comes. So no, they're not. Um, but I suppose that the, I mean, we've all experienced feelings of loss when you've been dumped by a girlfriend that you love. That sort of thing. That's that's probably not that that's not too far away from from losing a loved one to death. I suspect I don't know, but the feelings of, of loss and what it what it does to your body and what it makes you feel and how it makes you view the world at least temporarily, those th things I certainly have used. Try and you know to try and hang on to those rather unpleasant feelings and then portray them through a character like Hirad, who's but but his um, the, the the way that he actually sort of delivers those emotions is going to be totally different from mine. I'm not going to go and wallop someone with a sword because I'm a bit upset, whereas actually he would do that if, if, they, if, if they say the wrong thing at the wrong time. That, that's his nature, unfortunately. He's, uh, he finds it very difficult to deal with. But that's not the only theme. There, there's, 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 there's much more. They're the elves who have just survived the plague are after getting some stuff back which has been taken from them. So that there's... And, and then, and also, there's a a, a whole intercollege warfare breaks out as well. So there's there's a war going on in Balea. There's the Raven trying to do do right by their dead friend. They're also trying to um, save one of the magic colleges from uh, from complete destruction. And then there's the elves chucked in for good measure, if you like, who are 
who are feeling a bit peeved about what's happened to them. And if you read Elf Sorry, you know you don't want to make an elf peeved with you because it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. There's some research that says that 86% of mainstream book buyers bought a fantasy novel last year, presumably a Tolkien or J.R. <laughs> J.K. Rowling novel. And some of the people want to make their books look more like mainstream historical fiction and to get them racked in the sh bookshops after under fiction, and you've just undergone a, a beautiful cover makeover with your novels. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about where your books are shelved in the bookstore? I'm I'm happy that they're, they're on the fantasy shelves. They're fantasy novels, and that's where they should be, in the same way that historical fiction ought to be there, and crime should be with crime, because that's where people want to go and find it. I think that having them, what, what the makeover has done, actually, for, it's certainly in, in UK bookshops, is that they, although they're on the fantasy shelves, that's, that's nice, You'll, that they will also appear on tables around the bookstore or on little displays because they're attractive. No, oh, they are. That's really nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely happy with, with how they look. And if that encourages non-fantasy readers to pick one up and buy one, then that's fine by me. I'm very happy with that. I mean, I, I still suspect that 98% of my readers will be, will be fantasy fans before they start reading my books. But I guess the more your books are placed around a bookshop, eventually the more you're going to sell. And that, that's got to be a good thing. Sure. And, and, the bo and bookshops in the UK have really taken to them. Oh, that's great. What authors are you reading now, and what should your fans be reading, <laughs> other than yourself? Other than myself? Well, <laughs> um, I, I do try and keep my hand in reading fantasy, but by new authors particularly, just to see, see where the genre is going. I'm reading a book called The Weavers of Saramir at the moment by an author called Chris Wooding, who's w quite well known in the UK for his children and, and teen fiction, and has now just, just branched out. This is his first adult fantasy novel, and it's very in interesting very interesting idea that he's had um and what else am i reading i actually but I, I do try and have i have lighter moments too so i'm reading bill bryson as well because i think he's got a fantastic turn of phrase makes me laugh which is always a good thing and the other person that i'm reading is uh, louis de bernier who wrote captain crelly as we know but he wrote three other books before that really which are fabulous books they've got brilliant titles like um the one i'm reading at the moment is called the troublesome offspring of cardinal guzman which is um, a wonderful title for a book. And <laughs> what uh, comes next? Um, writing the sixth and final, although never say never, um, Raven book at the moment. It's going to be called Demon Storm, and it ups the ante a bit more, if that's possible. There's, uh, you know, it's an another threat to the world which Raven need to deal with, but it's um, it is their toughest challenge by a considerable margin. And beyond that, I'm planning more fantasy. I'm trying to do lots of things like like write screenplay treatments for my for the Raven books and see what happens with them because I, I happen to think they'd make lovely films obviously oh yeah they send um. them to Clint Eastwood <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I should yes <laughs> care of the mayor of Carmel yes. Right. <laughs> yes we've been talking to James Barclay whose latest books are Shadowheart and Lightstealer thanks James no problem anytime Rick <laughs>